You're listening to Coffee with Christine, a podcast designed to bring you laughter, maybe provoke some thought, and to inspire you. You'll hear real talk about things that matter to you. So grab yourself a good cup of coffee, sit back, relax, and enjoy the conversation. I'll do the talking. Insecure, inadequate. Have you ever felt this way? Duh, you're a human, so yeah. Have you ever longed for a situation to change in your life or in a loved one's life? Yeah, I get it. We, we've all done that. And maybe you've wished and prayed and worried, but sometimes it feels like God doesn't have time or doesn't hear you. But just maybe he's been at work behind the scenes while you unknowingly have been thinking, maybe nothing's ever going to change. Listen in on the miraculous events that took place just 10 minutes from our house where we lived overseas in Jos, Nigeria several years ago. I'm talking today with my good and longtime dear friend, Dr. Cindy Anthes. She and her husband are both physicians and they served as missionary doctors on a compound just a few minutes from where we lived. And if you've ever needed to know that it's okay to be inadequate or that God is at work, even when we can't sense it, you are going to want to hear this today. Cindy and I have been friends for 15 years. Oh gosh, at least, yeah. And we became friends when we were both going to serve overseas in Nigeria. And Cindy, you can you can pick it up and tell a little bit about yourself from there. Okay. Um, actually, one of my um, favorite Nigeria memories is the first day that. Christine and Herschel came to do their vision trip to Nigeria. And Christine, had you ever been out of the country? You'd never been, you'd never been to a third world country, I'm sure. No, I had never left the U.S. Okay, in very so, few states. So we are like in a van, overwhelmed, every sense that you possibly have, sight, smell, sound. And Christine is like shell shocked. And then we get pulled over by like the traffic police. And Christine is like starting to freak out. And I'm rolling down the window because I'm hot. And Christine's like, roll the window up, roll the window up. Because if I breathe the same air as them, they might pull us, you know, take us into jail or something with my thinking. I don't know. I don't know either. But somehow you and Herschel ended up still coming to Nigeria. So, um, yeah, that's, that's um, but my uh, role in Nigeria was as um, officially as supporting spouse, which I was pretty crummy at. But um, I, on the side, I was a family doctor in Nigeria and I did immunizations and community health and spent a lot of time doing something that I call relational medicine. And that happened some in my house when people would come with their problems there and some in a community center called Gedambege, which means House of Hope, where we um, had a clinic for Muslim street women and their children. We met once a week and fed them and shared um, chronological Bible stories with them and did medical care and really built relationships for the gospel. And um Let's not forget that you also practice medicine sometimes out on the tracks when you were out doing your morning exercise. Yeah, so my stress <laughs> relief was exercise, and it was often punctuated or interrupted by um, missionaries with their various ailments stopping me to ask me what they should do about this rash. Could they show it to me right here? Yeah. That's relational medicine. Definitely relational medicine. Um, 
sometimes that was a strain to relationships medicine. <laughs> yes, sometimes. <laughs> sometimes. Um, yeah, but um, so a lot of what I think about practicing medicine today and um, really mi missions in general, I learned in Nigeria. Let's dive into this great story. Okay, this one patient, I think, changed the way that my husband and I looked at why God had us in Nigeria and our view of missions. So I'll just launch in. The patient's name is Usman, and Usman was a member of the Fulani tribe, and the Fulani are nomadic Muslim herdsmen that live in uh, Nigeria, but all across West Africa, they travel with their cattle searching for water. And um, Usman lived in the far north of Nigeria and was tending his cattle one day in the field. And was um, he had just married his third wife. And in the Muslim culture, you can have up to four wives as long as you can support them. And that's not a, I mean, that's acceptable. And so he just married his third wife. But the woman he married was a young, highly desirable woman. And and there were rival suitors, and so they met him in the fields where he was with his cattle, and they ambushed him, and they shot him with their bows and arrows, and they left him for dead in the bush. And he was found by his family, and they also thought he would probably die, but they got him to the nearest road, and they put him on public transport, which basically means a van crammed full of people with these arrows sticking out of his leg and his chest. And that was to get him to the nearest city and hopefully a hospital that could help him. Um, when he got to the nearest hospital, they told him that the arrow that was sticking out of the left side of his chest and pulsating up and down with his heartbeat was likely in his heart, um, which I don't think was too much of a surprise to Usman, and that they weren't going to be able to help him, but that he should travel to a bigger city that had a mission hospital and maybe a doctor there could help them, help him. So we went by here. I'm just going to jump in there because this really happened. And how long ago was this? Um, this happened in 2003. Yeah, 2003. Okay. okay. Um, no, it might have been 2004. I think it was 2004. Mm -hmm. Sorry. Yes, it happened in 2004. So Usman arrived at Evangel Hospital in Jos, Nigeria, where my husband was working as an ear, nose, and throat surgeon. He arrived in the middle of the night, and in the middle of the night, we had Nigerian residents that would be taking care of the emergency room. And when they saw him and saw his situation, they actually didn't even call the senior level doctors on call because they thought that his chances of survival were so slim that they didn't think it warranted waking the doctors on call um, from their sleep to even address it. So my husband met Usman the following morning when they were doing surgical rounds. And surgical rounds is just where all, all of the surgeons at the hospital go from patient to patient that came in overnight trying to decide on a surgical plan. So when they saw this uh, man and the, that he had an arrow in his heart, they realized, well, he can't live like this and there's nowhere else that can help him. So we are the hospital that can help him. But Evangel Hospital was um, pretty much a typical mission hospital. They didn't have a cardiovascular surgeon. They didn't have cardiovascular anesthesia. They oh, didn't not have Grey's Anatomy. Not Grey's Anatomy, no. <laughs> no, don't picture Grey's Anatomy. Picture a series okay. of sort of hut-like buildings and a somewhat primitive uh, operating room. Um, our Probably our best trained surgeon was a general surgeon from the U.S. named Bill. And so he and my husband, Joel, who I said was an ear, nose, and throat surgeon, decided to operate on Usman um, 
because that he needed an operation and they were the two most qualified surgeons anywhere near um, and certainly in the hospital where Usman found himself. So they took him to the operating room and they devised a, an elaborate plan, which I think went something like, okay, Joel, you pull and I'll, you pull and suction so I can see. And Bill said, I'll try to sew the hole up as fast as I can and we'll see if we can save this guy. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I'm going to pause that story there. And all the while this was going on, I was in my house, um, which happened to be on the hospital compound because all the doctors that worked in the hospital lived on the compound where it was. And I was um, trying to learn the Hausa language, which is the language that was spoken by the Muslim people in that part of Nigeria. And so my language helper was there and my phone rang and um, no, first, first a car drove up to the house and I thought, oh gosh, not another interruption. I'm never going to get anything done. I'm never going to learn this language. And in the car is a good friend of ours, Mark, who was a Wycliffe Bible translator, happened to be translating the Bible into the language of the Fulani. Um, and then with him was a elderly woman, which I found out was one of few Fulanis that had trusted Christ, so a Fulani believer, and she was ill. So Mark had driven past a fully functional, fully equipped mission hospital to bring a very sick woman to my living room for me to take <laughs> care of her. So I tried to not be frustrated, told my language helper to wait, and I sat down to hear her story. And just about that time, my phone rings, and it's my husband, and he's calling me to tell me that I need to be praying, that they have this Fulani herdsman that's been shot in the chest with, a, with an arrow, and they're going to take him to the operating room, and I need to pray. And so... Um, I thought to myself, well, that's a very strange call. I mean, not that my husband was calling to ask me to pray for a patient because he did that a lot, but really that my husband, who's an ear, nose, and throat surgeon, was going to be operating on a patient's heart. That was <laughs> yeah. strange. Um, so we we prayed, and then Mark and his Fulani Christian friend that was ill decided well, this person speaks the language that we speak, and he's in the hospital, and there's no one else at the time in our hospital that spoke the Fulani language. Um, So they decided that her medical need could wait, and they decided to go down to the hospital and try to meet with Usman before he had his surgery. So they were able to go and share the gospel with him. And as a man, you know, he was facing his own mortality, you know, and so they shared the truth of the gospel and asked him, you know, if he knew if he died, did he know where he would be? They prayed with him. uh, And then Usman was taken to the operating room. So my husband and Bill operated on him. And as they got the arrow out, the arrows that the Fulani use are barbed, heavily barbed. And so when the arrow went in, it the heart actually sealed around the arrow, which was what allowed Usman to stay alive. But when my husband pulled the arrow out, all of those barbs just tore a hole in the left atrium, which is the top the top chamber of the heart. And so obviously lots and lots of bleeding and Usman lost almost his entire blood volume very quickly. And his heart started to slow and um, 
and then they were telling the anesthesiologist, you know, please give blood, give blood. But the anesthesiologist didn't want to give any of the blood because it was such a um, treasured resource and he didn't want to use it until he knew that Usman, the hole in his heart had been sewn up and that there was a chance of him surviving because they didn't want to waste the blood. Um, so once the hole was sewn up, they started giving the transfusions and miraculously Usman's heart started beating again and then faster and faster and he survived the surgery. And when he woke up in the post-op area, he asked to talk to Mark, our friend that was the Fulani translator, and he said, um, I know that I'm alive because of this Jesus that you told me about, and I want to pray to receive Jesus. Um, and wow. so he became a follower of Jesus. And the whole thing was completely miraculous from the fact that it took almost three days for Usman to get to Evangel Hospital, all the while with an arrow sticking out of the, his heart on the left side of his chest. He was operated on by two doctors that neither one of them had ever done any chest surgery in a hospital that didn't have the equipment needed. Um, but it, God had a plan for Usman to live, and Usman stayed with us in the hospital for the next four weeks recovering. And when he left and went back to his village, he arrived there, and it was as if he had been raised from the dead because they fully thought that he had not survived, and they had sold his cattle and divided his property. And so because it was so clearly a miracle that had saved Usman, um, he actually um, was able to sort of dodge some of the um, persecution that comes when a Muslim converts to Christianity. And he actually had a platform to talk about um, the miraculous work of Jesus. And we know from other um, Wycliffe Bible translators that Usman is still walking with Jesus today and, um, and that other people have been impacted by that. And so that one patient really showed my husband and I that God doesn't really need our fancy medical training or our specialties or um, our plans or our programs or even for me to learn the house of language. I mean, he wants us to do those things. He wants us to be trained and everything. But at the end of the day, it's really God that works the miracles. That's not really mm -hmm. up to us. I think that realization made us really shift our mission away from focusing on trying to fix programs or create programs to trying to focus on the person that God was bringing to us, not as an interruption, but as a person to love. So as we, you know, try to focus on loving God more and loving the people that God was bringing to us, I think with that shifted focus, God really started to bring people to us, all different kinds of people. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think, I think before... Usman and that and seeing God do that miraculous healing, I think we were focused on trying to establish sort of our ministry and learn the language so we could do the work that we needed to do. And just watching God so miraculously heal someone and it not be anything that we could have ever done without him, that just showed us that it was really all God's ministry and we needed to focus more on not being frustrated by interruptions, but seeing the interruptions as God bringing people to us that he wanted us to really love on mm -hmm. and minister to. Yeah, because life there is full of interruptions mm -hmm. and life here is. Yeah, yes, absolutely. <laughs> as evidenced yeah. by, a, you know, ha having a 20-minute conversation and get interrupted multiple times. And it's yeah. not always bad things, but it's that I can be annoyed by the interruptions, which a lot of times I am. 
and I can also ask God to take part in interruptions and show me where he's working in those. Yeah, definitely. I mean, and I think that that's its key is your um, attitude towards the interruption. And that all starts with, you know, where is my heart to start the day off? You know, have I spent my time focusing on loving God and what's going to pour out of me when I'm interrupted? So sometimes what pours out of you when you're interrupted <laughs> can be telling, can't it? Oh. Yes, yes, it can. Uh, oh, shoot. Don't ask my children about that. Anyway. Right, um, right. Backing up to the event with Usman, first of all, one of the things that really just amazed me and has blown me away. I heard this story shortly after it happened. And, you know, we got to see the images of Usman pre-op that I would love to be able to share too, where, you know, you've got the, the actual arrows, you know, you can see the one in his heart that you said was pulsating with every beat of his heart, which miraculously, I just can't even imagine being stuffed full of one of the, you know, sardine type public transport and being like that for three days and then actually making it through the surgery. That part I knew about, but I did not know about what was happening behind the scenes with Mark, our translator friend, being at your house and up a full day speaking woman that had come sick to see you for a doctor visit. I didn't even know about that until recently when you retold the story. So that just added another layer that really has been encouraging me because so often when I am praying and asking God, about something that's near to my heart, somebody that I love or events in my life that are going on and I can feel really frustrated by not hearing him answer when I want him to, how I want him to, or, you know, and all that stuff. But this was really good for me to be reminded that I may not see God at work behind the scenes. And even with you retelling the story years later, I'm getting to hear God at work behind the scenes. Yeah, and actually that was as much of a miracle as the fact that he survived the surgery because at the time our hospital didn't have anyone that spoke the Fulani language. Had Mark not been at my house, there wouldn't have been anyone that could have shared the gospel with him in his heart language before he went into surgery or to be there afterwards to talk to him about it. And it's not like Mark was stopping by my house every day. I mean, I think I can remember Mm -hmm. twice in the three years we lived there that Mark came to my house with someone that was sick. So it was a miraculous uh, event that was orchestrated completely by God for that moment. I mean, it was Usman's time to become a follower of Jesus for sure. Mm Mm-hmm. I don't know if he would have heard, you know, not knowing him, but just knowing how the persecution is there for a Muslim who becomes a follower of Jesus or anyone for that matter. Would would he have had ears to hear um, before facing his own mortality in such a way? I don't know. And I don't, I don't know, but man, I think an arrow in your heart would, <laughs> would get your attention, wouldn't it? Uh, yeah. Yeah, and and one of the things I remember that was so beautifully said when I originally heard this story years ago, shortly after it happened, was Usman came into the hospital with an arrow in his heart, and he left with Jesus there. Amen. Love yeah. that. It was definitely, and, and the pictures really are stunning, like you were saying, just the, uh, the pre-op and the post-op of that is pretty amazing. It never gets old. Whenever I look at those images, I was showing a friend that image yesterday, and she just 
really had no words. She just kept looking at it again and taking a deep breath. I can't believe this really happened. It's good for us to retell this story for ourselves to encourage our own heart. That's been an exciting thing for me to hear hear you tell it again. Yeah, definitely. And even being asked to tell the story recently, if somebody was asking me, how did that talk go? And I said, you know, I don't really know how it went or how it was received, but I think God asked me to tell it because I needed to hear it again. Mm -hmm. I needed to be reminded of his power to heal, his ability to work miracles, his compassion, all of those things. God just really needed to remind my heart of that. And so that was the purpose of the retelling more than the audience that was going to hear it. One of the great things that I love about God is that, yes, that could have been the main point for you, but I am sure that other people were affected by you telling it. And we just, we don't know what that looks like at this point and what will come, become of that. And one of the things that you touched on that, you know, was a takeaway for me, for you about it is something that means a lot to me too. And I think a lot of people is that God doesn't need our specialized training. And I mean, it's kind of comical if somebody's life wasn't on the line that you have an ear, nose and throat doctor and a general surgeon doing such a intricate kind of surgery. Right. Um, you know, it's- in a third world country. <laughs> yeah, with, I mean, who knows, with, you know, with not the, the perfect equipment or anything like that. So mm-hmm. um, it was definitely miraculous. And, you know, you could even look at it and you could say, well, maybe they were being cavalier, but the situation was such that he was going to die for sure. So it was like his only chance was for them to try. So I think that, yeah, that makes it even more powerful that it, there was no way in their own strength or their own training. And they both had had extensive training, but it, it didn't prepare either one of them to do this kind of surgery. Yeah, for that moment, which again reminds us of in going into specialized training and excellence, yes, God wants excellence from us and wants that good training and he wants us to not, it's not the kind of thing where I can say, well, God's going to do all the work, so I don't need to to do any kind of things to better myself. No, it's like, I feel that he works in that and in spite of it. Definitely. Yeah, for sure. And And um, I will have to say going, you know, for me as a person who does not have any kind of background or education like you, this is so encouraging and so life-giving because I do love learning. I'm almost kind of a learning junkie and, you know, enjoy always kind of trying out new things and learning new skills, but I don't have specialized education by any means like you do. So to hear God doing that sort of thing is really exciting. Yeah, definitely. And I think God, like God has like shown me over and over in all of the places that he has given me an opportunity to serve him. I mean, that that theme of it's not about you, it's all about me has been repeated. And so mm-hmm. like one other story that comes to mind just in that same vein happened in 2010 after the earthquake in Haiti. When, when I heard of what happened with the enormous earthquake in Haiti, I was immediately struck by, I want to go there and help. And it was kind of an irrational thought because at the time I had four kids at home. I am a family doctor. I'm not a trauma surgeon. I am absolutely terrified to fly. So it would require, you know, getting on an airplane to go. And, but I just felt like God was saying, you got to go, you got to help. I mean, that was just my heart. And I even told my husband that, and my husband was kind of like, you are crazy. So we went to bed and, and our phone, our house phone rang at like 10 o'clock at night, which no one ever calls us that late. And I answered the phone 
and it's this woman, and she says, I got your phone number from someone who you go to church with, and they said that you might be willing to go to Haiti. We're putting together a team to go down and do relief. And this was like the the morning after, I mean, the night after the her, the earthquake had happened that morning. And I said, yeah, I'm all in. I'm going. And um, I didn't even know what that would look like, like as far as childcare and trying to get off of work and everything. Um, but we left, um, like not the next morning, but the next morning. And we flew to Haiti, a little team of us from Houston, some nurses, some nurses, and we flew in a little private like eight-seater plane, which was completely terrifying. And we landed on a runway that hadn't been used in, I don't know, years. They had to clear cattle off the end of it for us to actually have enough (laughs) distance to land. So by the time we got there, I was pretty much a basket case. Then we're, so we landed in a city that wasn't Port-au-Prince where the main issues were in the capital. Um, and we had to fly in a military helicopter from where we landed in the south up to Port-au-Prince, and it was completely terrifying. So we get to this hospital in Port-au-Prince, and we are able to set up. It was a the hospital had actually been spared a lot of damage, and we were able to set up two different operating rooms, and we were able to run them 24 hours around the clock. And we had orthopedic surgeons, American orthopedic surgeons, and some Haitian orthopedic surgeons, and we had an emergency room. And we were just taking care of tons and tons of patients. So you kind of think to yourself, so what does a family practice doctor do in that setting? So I got assigned um, post-operative care, which was way out of my comfort zone or my training. And so I was supposed to be dealing with pain management, which I didn't have much more than Tylenol and Advil. And these patients were having like amputations and surgeries like that. But the other thing that I was responsible to do was to change bandages. So when you have a terrible crush injury like happened in the earthquake, when the buildings collapsed, people would have their arm traumatically amputated, and then that wound dressed every day and taken very care of And so I was spending my days going from bed to bed, changing these dressings and, you know, spending time with people and trying to love on people. And so the second day we were there in the morning, a young Haitian woman showed up at the hospital to volunteer. She looked, you know, very competent and she was super willing to help. And I said, okay, well, you can be my assistant. And so together she and I, for the next 12 hours, went bed to bed, changing dressings and just trying to minister to people. We sang with people, we prayed with people, because this is a painful process to have dressings like this changed. And, um, and at the end of the day, we were sitting down and I just said, you know, this was, we did this all in God's strength today because there's no way we could have done this on our own. This is really hard work. And I said, so where are you in your medical training to this young woman? And she looked at me and she said, I'm not in medical training. I'm an attorney. I've never done any medical work before. And I just thought God hand slapping me in the face. Like you, yes, you're right. You're doing this in my strength, but like, I'm doing it. I mean, this woman that helps you today, she's never even seen a wound before. The fact that she was able to to stay upright and not get queasy and like oh, change yeah. these wounds and love on these people, and she'd never even been in the hospital before. Um, I mean, that was all God. And I was also struck by the fact that she was completely obedient. I mean, she just showed up at the hospital because she had survived this earthquake that all Two hundred thousand people, and she wanted to help. And so when I said I need someone to help me do dressing, she didn't say, "Oh, but wait, I'm an attorney. Don't you have something I can do that uses my skill set?" She mm-hmm. just said, "I'm all in." And 
and God used her, I mean, in such a miraculous way. And that was really impactful for me because it wasn't about me leaving the comforts of my house in suburban Houston and flying to Haiti to help these people. I mean, it was really about watching God mobilize people that were obedient in the body of Christ to be his hands and feet. Right. Willing people. Willing people. And that, um, that really, really struck me. Um, yeah, my, my, the thing that I'm responsible for is being willing and obedient and to do whatever role he me you know he puts in front of me to do i love it i love god's really sweet and funny sense of humor that you know i i know when you said that to her at the end of that long day that you would have just been amazed and awed you know we just spent 12 hours on our feet only by god's grace did we make it through that day and then when she told you you know, no, well, I'm an attorney. And just to underscore that fact, what you had just said, you know, God's like, yeah, <laughs> you know, that, that's really what happened. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Amen, sister. <laughs> and this is also so encouraging again for me because, you know, just that, that same point that, you know, one of those things that you've drawn from Usman's story and got at work because, you know, Herschel and I, when we first sensed that God was calling us out to go serve him in full-time ministry in Nigeria, he was a realtor. He had been in real estate. That was his profession for the 10 or so years before that. And, you know, I was a stay-at-home mom, which I loved and, you know, put my whole heart into that. But the only people that we knew that had gone out as missionaries because, you know, this was not anywhere on our radar. So the only people we knew, both the husband and wife of these two couples were doctors like, like you and your husband. And so, you know, Herschel and I would just laugh and go, well, God, what do you want us to do? Sell huts? We'll do whatever you want. <laughs> and so it's, uh, I love hearing that because it's, um, it's just good to know, you know, with my, if I'm, out there with my palms up going, God, use me, whatever you want, I'll do it. And that, that he actually just comes right in there in that weakness or inadequacies of ours and does his thing. Yeah, definitely. I mean, and I've been with your husband in Uganda and we needed to vaccinate like a hundred kids and I knew what vaccines to give them, but I have like, I'm not good at logistics and, but Herschel with his background being in the military, man, he was the one that, organized that immunization day. He had everyone lined up and he was keeping track of who got what. And so, I mean, it really takes the body of Christ um, Mm -hmm. to do the work that God gives us to do. That's what I'm seeing, you know, just the big overall takeaway from those, both of those events. And um, we have a really good picture of you. I can't remember. You were outside of that helicopter that took you all into Haiti. (laughs) Yeah. I'm just wondering how terrified you were in that moment. Okay. So when they told us we were going to have to get into this helicopter, there were people that were actually hurt in the city we landed in. It was just that there weren't any supplies there yet. And we knew that the Canadian government was coming in there. And so they didn't really need us there. And I actually was like, you know what? Uh, let me just stay here. Like I can hang out and help these people. Um, and they're kind of like, well, no, you need to stay with us or you're never going to get back to the U S. And so seriously, my only incentive to get on that helicopter was like, if I don't stay with this group of people, I will never see my children again. Yeah. Um, that was really it. The pilot came over because he knew that I was super 
anxious about getting on the helicopter. And it was supposed to be to give me confidence that everything was going to be fine. And literally, it was a child. I mean, it was a U.S. military pilot, but he, he was not shaving yet. I mean, he looked like a child. And he <laughs> was like, not give you confidence. No, he was like, yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. We got to come. He was from the South, like from Alabama. Yes, ma'am. Oh. I'm like, oh my gosh. Oh my, I'm, a child is flying me in a helicopter. And it was a, I forget what it's called. It was like a, um, not a black hawk. It's called a Seahawk. And so the back of the helicopter actually doesn't even close. It's like an open cargo area. Woo. Yeah. It was, the whole thing was terrifying. And I, it, it was, but it was funny. And I just thought, well, God has a sense of humor, doesn't he? That I am on this military helicopter in Haiti. But you did it. And you well, were obedient. And that's, that's great. Even if I your knees were knocking, you know. Yeah. Point. I guess I guess the take home is also if you don't feel like you're adventurous and so like oh I could never go and do foreign mission trips and um I mean I'm certainly not adventurous. I mean I'm terrified to fly. I'm not a good traveler. I don't I I think we we limit God by saying, well, I don't I'm not a traveler. I don't whatever I whatever my weakness is, I can't do that. But I think sometimes God does have a sense of humor and kind of like pushes us past that so that he can say, yeah, you can't, but I can. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And then one of the things that as I, you know, think back on that time, that time frame back in, going back to Nigeria, um, you know, you are an amazing, you're an amazing person. You're an amazing friend with lots of different skills that I do not have. Going to the whole body of Christ, I would do your eyebrows. So, you know, yeah, my I hair. have something very valuable to <laughs> offer. <laughs> That's well, and let's keep it real. Yeah, these things are important on the mission field. They really are. Well, that wraps up our time with Cindy for today. Thanks for listening to Coffee with Christine. And don't worry, we will definitely touch more on my insecurity and inadequacies and how great things have happened in spite of them. And you know what that means for you? It's okay to feel insecure, inadequate sometimes. It's also okay to feel like nothing's going to change because that's just a feeling. As we heard today with Cindy and her husband and Usman's life, just because we aren't seeing things happen the way that we think they should, God could be at work behind the scenes. God is at work behind the scenes. I'd love to hear from you if today's podcast impacted you in any way. And if you like today's podcast, will you go and leave me a five-star rating and share it with your friends? Thanks so much for listening.